Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. This is our 40th episode podcast where we go through the next week of our readings from our chronological reading plan and discuss some of the themes and most important bits. We are into the New Testament. This is our second week in the New Testament, which is exciting. We are going to be reading from John 5, Mark 2 to 6, Matthew 11 to 13, and then also Matthew 5 to 8, and then Luke chapter 6 to chapter 9. Great. It is great. <laughs> I did I did just want to comment very briefly on the women at the well. Excuse me, the woman at the well in John 4. Yes. Because <laughs> we didn't quite get to it last week. <laughs> and... Uh, Really, what I don't have a whole lot to say. I just wanted, I just had Ooh. some, I just thought, had some thoughts as I read through it this time, especially again coming right off of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I think seeing a lot of resonances that were just, I think, sharpened, you know, that Jesus is in Samaria, which would be the region where the Samaritans come from. It's a Samaritan woman. You know, these are the people, more or less, that Ezra and Nehemiah had denied. You know, no, you can't help us build the temple. No, you can't, you know, go back to your your territory. And so they had developed their own temple on Mount Gerizim and their uh, their own really parallel whole religion, you know, sacrifices, priests, the whole the whole deal. And so it's just it was just striking to me that that Jesus is speaking to, you know, this woman who is a Samaritan and they talk about, well, what is the, the true nature of worship? But also, and I don't know, I don't know if this is really a thing, but I just noticed it, that marriage is also like present in that story with Jesus and the woman of the well, that she's been married five times mm-hmm. and the man she's with now is not her husband. Going back to the whole divorce and everything else in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's just like, whoa. Oh, oh. Huh. Huh. I don't, again, <laughs> that whole thing I want to know more about, but just, it was just like, hmm, that's interesting <laughs> it is interesting you know we should do a special episode who, at some point after we've who, done some research. who divorced her you know and, and uh why and yeah so anyway so i just thought that, that was interesting that's literally it i just had those couple of thoughts that i wanted to i wanted to put out there for everybody one of the things that i love about the woman at the well story is a lot of times the gospels will do contrasts and you mm-hmm. can see contrasts from one story to the next mm-hmm. and i think the woman at the well is being contrasted with nicodemus Excuse me. Because we get in John 3, we get this holy man who is skeptical. Right. He's exactly the kind of person that you would have expected to just grab hold of the gospel and run with it. Right. He's a a devoted religious man. And he does eventually come around. But the the sort of religious hero at the time is not an easy convert. Mm -hmm. But the outcast woman who we can imagine... Uh, if this woman were part of a church, the things that would be said about her mm-hmm. is an easy convert to Jesus and brings her whole people. And I feel like John did not do that on accident. Mm-hmm. Whether these stories happen right next to one another chronologically or not, John placed them together in part to draw our attention mm-hmm. to the, con- the contrast. Uh, Luke does the same thing with Zechariah and Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, those stories yeah. happen in chronological order that way, but... But we see Zechariah, this man who is the religious hero, need a whole lot of convincing. And Mary, right. the 15-year-old girl who is not looked at, is a, would not have been a person people would have expected to take things well religiously, does. Mm-hmm. And, and that theme in the Gospels of the 
those that are um, subverted expectations, yeah, subverted yeah. expectations, flipped yeah. on their head, and they're they're both early, and mm-hmm. I think that that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that's very much in keeping with Jesus's words that the first will be last, and the last mm-hmm. will be first. I mean, that's you know just the the kingdom kind of flips everything, everything upside down. Well, speaking of that, I think that that segues nicely into the first kind of the major theme that I think we see in these early uh, chapters of the Gospels, which would be the rejection of Jesus uh, that we see throughout in different ways and by different people. Um, and we this is something we also didn't really get to last week either. It's just in the opening of John chapter one, you know, he has the the famous part and then it, it you know talks about that he came to those who were his own and his own did not receive him. So it is this this just strange kind of sad situation where the people have been waiting so long for a Messiah, and then like the ones who were actually expecting him are the ones who, at least at first, reject him. Whereas the Gentile people, the the non covenant people who are totally out of the loop, you know, they don't they're not caught up in the story of Israel. They don't know what's going on. They hear about the Jewish Messiah. you know and more or less instantly come to faith and so it is it again it's just this this pattern of subverted um flipped flipped over expectations and the thing that we i think i take from that most is the reason that god's own people had such a hard time with this the religious leaders did is because they thought they knew what it was going to look like right Mm. so jesus came in a way god acted in a way different than what they were expecting and so they resisted him all the way to the point of killing him. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's so important for us as Jesus followers is not to look at them as, well, that's because they're villains, mm-hmm. but to put ourselves in their shoes and imagine what God might be trying to do that might be different than what we think he should be doing. Not all of our hangups or things that we think are bad are we correct about God's perspective on. And not the same goes for things that we think are good, right? And... The willingness to allow God to act, I mean, he's going to act, but to follow God when he acts in a way that's different than what we expect is something we we have to prepare in our hearts. And that's very difficult to do. Um, There's one of these stories that we talked about bringing up specifically. So we see it in Mark 3 and Matthew 11. Um, and it's in Luke 2, but he's performing miracles. And so some of his critics say he's not performing them by the power of, uh, he's not performing them by a good power. He's performing them by the power of Beelzebul. Mm-hmm. And Ben, I would just like it if you could tell us who that is and why that happened. Um, Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. And I think it's a reference. We read it. Gosh, is it? Oh. It's in Numbers, I think, or Leviticus. Mm, no, because it's it's a play on Baal Zaphon, I think, which was which means Lord of the North or Lord of the Northern Mountain. Uh, it's one of the prophets, or maybe it's in Kings that they 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 pun or they change the name to be like Lord of the Maggots or Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. I remember that, um, but I can't remember where it was. <laughs> you are correct. It's Second Kings, and uh, and so then there, it's just. I think that that kind of over time, I mean, that's centuries ago, I think that that uh, the uh, nickname <laughs> kind of became associated with the devil himself. And so it just kind of became an alternate word for it. A way of not having to actually invoke the name of the devil when referring to the devil. Yeah. yeah. A diminutive well, nickname. A diminutive nickname, just not, yeah, not Lord of the Flies in terms of like, 
oh, it's scary, you know, because he's the Lord of death. But I think, yeah, more of just a Lord of, of nothing, the Lord of rot, you know. And so, yeah, it's, it's more of a diminutive. It's not meant, it, it sounds sinister, I think, to us. Like, yeah. ooh, the Lord of the Flies. I think flies we also, were a lot more common then. <laughs> well, and we also associate it, I think, with the book of that same name, yeah. which obviously is about the the wickedness in human nature and, and anyway. But uh, yeah, so I think it's it's meant to be more of a diminutive uh you know, mm-hmm. a, it's a diminutive title. It's not meant to be like a sinister or a, a uh, whatever. Yeah. When fear, you live your life, invoking title. When you live your life um, largely outside, um, flies are everywhere all the time. You don't eat without them being on your food. You don't, I mean, any of that. My time in Africa, um, I remember just being frustrated by how much more of a hassle flies were than they are here. And that was their experience. They're not scary. They're just small things you hate and want to squash and so yeah it's not meant to be a scary title but then something interesting happens after after that you know jesus kind of he flips it on them and he says that if if i'm if i'm using the power of satan to cast out demons then he's a kingdom divided against himself he can't stand that doesn't make any sense and then he goes on to talk about the blasphemy of the holy spirit um, would you like to share us, with us a little bit about what, what that means? Because that's a common thing that people ask about. As a pastor, that's probably in, that's definitely in the top five of Bible passages I've ever been asked mm-hmm. about. Yeah, I'll just I'll quote it from Mark, five, or Mark 3. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, on the one hand, I think we, you know, that, that generally people ask us this because they are afraid mm-hmm. of doing it, <laughs> you know, which I think a little bit of that is probably not bad, you know, uh, that it, it it's, <laughs> I think often we ask those sorts of questions like, where's the limit? Because we want to be able to come right up to it, but not actually go over. And it's like, well, let's just let's just press into the middle. Let's not play around <laughs> the edges. The Pharisees uh, start making sense when yeah. we're thinking. Like, well, that's yeah. true. But and so I think that it is. It's that Jesus is in in the moment. You know, when he said this, he's talking about these religious leaders who are watching what he's doing and ascribing it to the work of evil spirits meaning they are offending, they are blaspheming the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who's actually enabling and empowering Jesus to do this. And so I think Jesus is saying, if you can watch this, if you can, before your living eyes, kind of see the coming of God's kingdom and think that it's coming from hell, then you're lost. Like you, you cannot be saved. I don't, I personally don't think if a theologian were to pop in and ask Jesus, now, do you mean this totally and completely that they can never be saved? I don't, I think Jesus would have said no. I think he's, I think he means to say to these religious leaders, remember that's who he's speaking to, that there is no hope for them if they are this confused, this blinded, this, this dead set against acknowledging the power of God in their midst. But that doesn't mean that they can't by God's own power you know their hearts can be changed their hearts can be turned you we know see that in some of right the and we see beginning. that happen and so, and so i think that and i say all that just to say we always have to as much as we can understand what did he mean <laughs> in 
in that day, you know, like, what did he mean? Was Jesus making a comment about cosmic things that are true for all time? I don't think so. I think no. he was speaking into that specific moment. Now, I think that it's true that if a person goes their whole life and doesn't acknowledge what they're seeing as being the, the working of God, you know, that Jesus is from God, well, then, yes, I mean, then they're they're not in the covenant because they never accept it. I mean, that, that seems pretty open and shut to me. You know, so it's not that, oh, there's the secret sin, you know, or this this awful thing that you might accidentally say, yes. you know, and then God will send you to hell forever. It's like, no, I think that he is speaking to what they're saying. And Jesus says this in another place that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What Jesus is saying is that these these leaders words about him and about this mis mis uh, mislabeling, you know, misassigning of his power is coming from. A, a heart that is hard, a heart that is blind, a heart that is is lost and will be lost in its sin without the intervention of God, mm-hmm. and which is true for us too. I agree. Yeah, I agree with all that. The And so to Ben has already said this. I want to restate it. If you are worried that you may have accidentally said the original sin and that that is troubling to you because you want to belong to Jesus, you have not, you have not, said a sin that has cut you off from the Lord. That is not that person who is looking at the kingdom of God and declaring it of the evil one cannot be worried about the saying of an unforgivable sin. Um, they've, they're cutting themselves off actively. But we also know stories of people that have been very devoted atheists um, against God's kingdom. And I mean, Paul, Literally, mm-hmm. in the story, That's he, true. he goes... Paul would have been one of these people. I mean, he wasn't there at that time, right. but he would have been saying similar things. Because he's seeing the, the kingdom of God showing up in these Christians, and he's putting them to death because he believed it was the work of the evil one. Mm-hmm. And and Jesus came and turned him around. And so it is. it can't be a absolute, you've said the wrong words, and now there's no hope for you. And also, and this is just so important, as we go through the Gospels... You'll hear us talk about it. Jesus loves hyperbole. Mm -hmm. He uses, so hyperbole is an exaggeration with a purpose, right? It makes a point. So when someone says, you know, you never do the dishes, Mm -hmm. they don't mean never in the entire course of the time that I have known you, have you ever done a dish? Uh, What they mean is you don't do it as often as I need you to, want you to, would like you to, or you should, and that needs to change. When Jesus, and this is, part of our passages later on says that if you've, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your eye, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. If you've, if you've spoken with anger or harbored anger in your heart, you've already harmed somebody. He's not saying that, well, then you might as well just go ahead and do it because they're equally bad. Mm -hmm. He's, he's making a point with a tremendous exaggeration and, and we need to let him do that. It's one of those times, ironically, that if we heard him, a preacher say it, we would have no qualms about what they were trying to say. Like hyperbole is equally a part of our culture Mm -hmm. as it was then. But since we see it in the words of Jesus, we feel the need to ascribe this different kind of meaning to it. And that's just a very odd thing about reading the Bible. So one of the things that we see a lot of the time in these stories, it seems as though it happens so often that it must be on purpose to make a point, is that Jesus gets in trouble about Sabbath stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, we see that in a couple of stories here, and we'll continue to, that, that Jesus often does healings, miracles on the Sabbath, and, and the Gospels make a point of telling us that it was on the Sabbath. And uh, I think that, you know, and this is connected, this is part of the early opposition to Jesus, was that they felt like he was violating the Sabbath and telling other people to do it. And, uh, you know, it's it's an odd thing, I think, and I think that Jesus's point in a lot of these things, and I think he was intentionally doing it on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a great day for people to be healed. That's the point of it, you know, that it is meant to be the day of life, the day of celebration, the day of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And that looks like people being made whole, you know, and I think that it's, it is, it back to the contrast, you know, that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode of like the reaction, you know, that these religious leaders can watch a man who was lame from birth be healed and go leaping and celebrating around and be mad about that because he also picked up his mat, you know, and you're not supposed to bear a burden on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, but, and and honestly, like, I think you can map, the Pharisees are not the villains, and we've said that over and over again, but, like, you can map on modern people's reactions to things that somebody's healed or set free or whatever, and the folks who are sitting off to the side mad about some aspect of it, it's like they are... They need to repent. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is what that is. If you've ever heard the testimony of a person whose life has just been completely suddenly turned around by Jesus, they've accepted mm-hmm. him and they're telling the church about it. They often will speak in ways that are just not usually what you hear in church. Right. You might hear a cuss word. You might hear something just a little bit, um, I don't know, not church appropriate. And to listen to that and think, and to be mad is, mm-hmm. is this kind of a reaction. That's correct. Yeah. It also calls the um, the Good Samaritan to mind because the Good Samaritan is this man who's beaten and bloodied in the street. And these religious people, they they walk the past and they see him and they're afraid of becoming ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so they don't touch him because mm-hmm. their priorities are completely screwed up. Um, to them, it's more important to not get dirty right. um, than to help a person who's dying in the street. And that's just an example of this disordered priorities mm-hmm. that we talk about. And one of the things Jesus was doing was setting those straight. Mm-hmm. I think he picked fights with them about he the did. On well, I think he picked fights in that, in, in you know, in, in <laughs> that it was a way of reminding them, you know, that that the Sabbath was for life, yes. that the law is for life, and that in His name, and even in in just the covenant, the old covenant with Moses, of like they were they were saved by an action of God. And that they didn't have to nitpick. It's the nitpicking, I feel like, that Jesus, you know, in many ways takes an issue with. Even commands that ultimately do come from Leviticus and Numbers. Like when Jesus, it doesn't happen, I think, in our readings, but in a, in a few weeks or so, he's just going to abolish, fulfill the food laws, however you want to put that. It's just like, and that's done. <laughs> <laughs> because I said so. Uh-huh. And that's it. <laughs> just like wait 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 <laughs> but you told us <laughs> that we couldn't eat these things like yes i did and now i'm telling you you don't have to worry about it anymore you know and it's defined our national identity <laughs> for thousands of years you know and so i think that it's it's and this is related to our kind of our third big theme here it's just that jesus is the, the kingdom or he's bringing the new kingdom and kind of doing some of these constitutive actions that are showing this but I think that, yeah, just this fulfillment of the Sabbath is part of that as well, of like God's kingdom is coming upon you. Your categories or your rules or your way of operating. I think that, 
and I think that that's really why we should we should favor the word fulfill, not abolish or or whatever mm-hmm. else, because Jesus isn't saying. Well, sometimes he is, but like obviously the laws of the Torah itself were not bad, but they're done, <laughs> you know, or they're fulfilled. I mean, that again, that's I think they the were best, for purpose. Way to put it. And right, that they happened. were good for what they were good for, but now that's over with, you know, and and we have to move on from them, or we have to whatever i think walk in in freedom from them and so i think that you know and and i think maybe i don't remember if we talked about this before or not but with the sabbath specifically like they had built out jewish tradition had built out all these rules surrounding the sabbath i think for conscientious reasons right so the the thinking is okay so if the actual command is don't do work do not work on the sabbath cease from work okay fine well, then that probably means we shouldn't do anything resembling <laughs> what we would call work, which also means that we shouldn't do anything that resembles what other people do for work, which means that, you know, and, and you can just kind of see this this building out. And it gets to how many steps can right, you take? Right, into kind of what to us seems like absurd things, you know, about not picking up sticks, not, you know, whatever. Uh, and... And it's never said you shall not heal on the Sabbath, <laughs> you know, but I think that that, that it kind of just reveals the heart attitude of where things had gone. That instead of being this day where heaven came down and kind of contacted earth, the Sabbath had just become this this long chain, really, of rules and regulations that were constricting the people, you know, rather than setting them free. Um, and that's not because the Sabbath was bad, you know, it's because of what they had done to it or what they had. And you know, again, not, and not just well, to, yeah. you know, lay the Jewish leaders on the fire. I think you can turn around and look at the modern church, you know, and, and think about things that have been Sabbathized. <laughs> so I actually, I made a note that I wanted to, to mention one. Um, so modesty, I think hmm. may be the current evangelical pharisaical Sabbath. Modesty is, first of all, it's only ever applied to women, really. Um, but the, the, these strong rules about what should and should not be worn. And so modesty is a virtue. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And for it to be beneficial and sanctifying, then it has to be freely chosen. You are not sanctified by doing something you've been forced to do. And so when everybody around you forces you, makes a rule, judges, ostracizes, criticizes you because you've done something wrong, you are not actually being sanctified when you when you do it right. And so one of the things that we do happens with with youth groups, happens with churches. Um, we, we make rules that are usually not written, um, almost never written, but very strongly felt so that, you know, people are not allowed to wear certain things. This could be dressing up on Sunday morning. You're not allowed to wear blue jeans. This could be you know, how short of, of a skirt you're wearing, you're not allowed to do that. And so we've made it an obedience to an authority. And I think that when we do that, we are, we are both setting up rebellion, hmm. because the harder you press on something that a person feels like should be their choice, the more likely you are to get rebellion. But also what we're taking away from them is the free choice of modesty, because then they don't understand the why. They've just been told that they must. And so the idea that uh, a young woman in particular could have that, like, I realize that when I dress modestly, I'm being kind to the people around me is not a, a, a thing they're able to figure out because they're just following a set of rules so they don't get in trouble. 
And and then we get real specific about lengths of clothes and, and all of it. I mean, we, we drum up a ridiculous and absurd number of regulations about this kind of thing. That happens in churches. It happens in schools. It happens all over the place. And I don't think we can see it very easily because we're inside of it. Um, but, but I do. I think we have done with modesty what they did with the Sabbath. Well, and, you know, and I, yeah, I think those are all great points. And I just kind of stepping back into the bigger picture, you know, that I, as a pastor, just as a person, as a Christian, you know, just try and just try and examine things of like where in my heart or just where in the pattern of our life together, like, can I see that we are more, we are more concerned with the rules than we are with whether people are being healed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, you know? And I think that you can, I mean, it just, it, <laughs> that it crops up a lot. Like, I think there's something in people or just in religion, you know, in terms of like as a system of control and, and organization that it just, it, t- it tends toward this. It does not tend toward healing and freedom, you know? And I think that, that, uh, which one of the reformers, said something about always reforming. The church should always be reforming. Am I making that up? Semper reformanda. We'll say it was Luther. Uh, (laughs) But just this idea that, you know, that, that once they realized that they were reformers and starting their own thing, not just renewing the Catholic church back in the 1500s, but just this idea that the church should always be reforming, right? It's not that, okay, we've We've made these choices. We're now this sort of a church, and now we're good forever. It's like, well, no, you know, the next generation will be able to see the current generation's issues more clearly, and will then course correct while also making their own mistakes that will then need to be corrected. You know, and, and it's not that the church on this side of the Lord's return will never like achieve perfection. We can't. You know, we're we're always under our own limits and cultural blind spots and all these different things. And so I think that as we can listen and learn from one another, Christians across generations, Christians across racial and economic backgrounds, and just different churches, I think, as they're in closer relationship with one another as well, can help with this, even if it's not up front, but just by way of, of the comparison of like, hmm, they do that this way, we do that that way, why? You know, and what are the benefits and the, and the drawbacks to both? And and how maybe could we be more faithful or, or whatever else in our in our actions or in just the ways we think about those things. He was von Laudenstein. I have no idea who that is. Oh, he was a Dutch reformer. Oh, he's well known. Yeah. Great. Did he die or did he get killed? <laughs> I was about to say, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he did <laughs> die. Yeah. Uh, did he get killed? I don't remember. Is I'm it just worth curious. looking it up? No, probably not. Okay. Uh... <laughs> um, I want to, so we've, we've transitioned to talking about the new kingdom mm-hmm. and one of the things that we've referred to, if you've been listening to the podcast throughout the Old Testament, is the emphasis on the new creation that we mm-hmm, see mm-hmm. over and over and over again. It's clearer in the New Testament because it's happening, right? It's right. been a thing that has been the promised. The fulfillment is happening, right. yeah. It has been promised and happening in, in bits and in spurts all through the scriptures. But all these things that have been prophesied about, have been talked about, are being fulfilled in the New Testament. It's amazing. And one of the, the things that is easy for us to make a mistake on, evangelicals can get an idea that what the gospel is, is the story or the, the good news is if you repent 
you can go to heaven, right? And that and that that is what the gospel is drummed all the way down to. And that is certainly part of the good news. I mean, my word, that's part of the good news. But it is this bigger idea about the new creation that God is making, breaking in and being fulfilled by Jesus. And I think that's just so important. You're going to see, and as Pastor Ben said last week, every story, every every story that you read in the Gospels is a little version of the Gospel. And it's what it looks like when the new kingdom arrives, what mm-hmm. life is like in the new kingdom. It's telling us something about the Gospel. And I've heard it said before that the best place to go for the Gospel is Paul. And, and Paul's wonderful. Like, I love Paul. I'm so excited for when we get to Paul. His the sole purpose of the gospel writers was to tell you the gospel, <laughs> right? Like I mean, it's insane. Well, and we that goes back to what we mentioned, I think, at the beginning of last week too. That sometimes we think that there is a, a difference between like the gospel in terms of what you share to someone about Jesus, and then what the story is about Jesus, or that the gospel doesn't really start until the end of the gospels when we get to Jesus's death. And it's like, no, that's not. That's just not true. You know, that that it's all the all of it is the story, you know, and that contained within all these stories at the beginning is the whole thing yes. of Jesus' death and resurrection and, and his healing power. It's not always explicit, but welcome to the Bible. It hasn't mm-hmm. been explicit since the very first page. Right. Yeah. And that's important. There's one spot. If Can we talk about Luke 8 a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a... You, Something that happens a lot in Mark, but Luke has has taken Mark's structuring for this, which I appreciate. I mentioned last week, Mark likes to tell stories in conversation with one another. So he will split mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. apart and put another story in the middle a lot of the time. So I want to talk about there's this this story in, chap, in the book of Luke. It starts in chapter 8, verse 40. And we get um, the story of a man named Jairus, who's a synagogue leader. And because his only daughter, he comes and he, he pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter, who's mm-hmm. 12 years old and dying. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, he, he heads with Jairus to, um, to go and, and save the man's daughter or to heal her. Um, and as he's doing that, this woman who'd had a bleeding issue for 12 years, um, she, she, she wants to be healed. And she sees Jesus. And so she doesn't want to trouble him. So she just comes up behind him and touches the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. But Jesus senses that the power went out from him. And so he turns around and asks, you know, who touched me? And and I imagine for a moment she was terrified because she felt healed. But then, like, this man turns around and says, who did that? You know, mm-hmm. and the, the, and the apostles all say, you know, how could we tell? There's all crowd pressing in on you. Um, but then the woman admits it. And, and Jesus says, you know, daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace. And while that's happening, someone comes and tells Jairus, your daughter is dead. It's too late. And then Jesus goes and he raises her from the dead. He says she's not dead, but asleep. Um, Why do you think these stories are mixed together like this? Mm -hmm. So our Leviticus bells should be ringing very loudly. (laughs) Yes, they should. Because there was the Leviticus bell. (laughs) That was good timing. Our Leviticus bells should be ringing very loudly uh, for these stories. Both of these. (laughs) Now we'll leave it in. (laughs) Thank you, Leviticus. (laughs) (laughs) 
for always being a disruptive presence in our efforts to read the Bible. <laughs> that was perfect. That was funny. So both of these women are impure. Uh, the older lady, because she's bleeding, and so that's Leviticus 13. It's a violation of the, the integrity of the body. She's bleeding, and so she's, in, she's impure. Unclean, I should say. And then the girl is unclean because she has died, and so it's he should not have touched her. And so both of these stories, Jesus is being shown as the living embodiment of... <laughs> the living embodiment of purity and again what we mean by that is the the force of life in the creation that he is life itself and so for this unclean woman to reach out and touch him was an act of faith on her part and i think that's why she was healed because there were all these other people bumping into him in the crowd and as far as we know none of them were her contact was different because she knew what she was doing she's an unclean person about to reach out and touch this rabbi which in the in the not just traditional sense, but in the biblical way that they've all been taught, is going to make him unclean. And she... But she does it because she believes... I think she does it because she believes that Jesus will heal her, even just by touching, and he does. I mean, that's what happens, you know. And it's a powerful, powerful story, you know, uh, that, yeah, I mean, she's healed, and then again, the little girl is dead, and, and Jesus touches her and brings her back to life you know and so it's like even the even death itself the ultimate uncleanness uh cannot stand against the power that jesus is bringing the power that jesus is this is as it's told in both mark and luke and matthew um i mean it may be one of my favorite bible stories um just the the meekness of this woman coming Mm -hmm. to him this is a um if you can imagine I'll just say this, and if in later posts I decide to edit it, but but the the way that it's worded, this is a woman who's been like minstrelly bleeding mm-hmm. for twelve years, and if you can imagine in the ancient world how just how troublesome that would be, um, this is not a time where iron supplements or you know an mm-hmm. overabundance of water to stay hydrated. Right. She's, she's been sickly. Yeah. She's been sickly. Um, it's an issue that's hard to deal with on on its own and it's just lasted for so long. Right. I think that she's probably accepted a long time ago that her life was just going to be miserable up until she died. She hasn't been to the temple or really probably been inside a synagogue in decades. Cause she can't, she can't. Yeah. And, and so the way that she must have felt like God didn't care um, because all of this that happened yeah. to her would ostracize her completely. I mean, imagine be needing healed, but being told because of the thing you need healed from, you can't go to the temple where mm-hmm. God is. And so she sees this this Messiah figure, this rabbi who's who's doing healings, and she knows that her God can do it. And in in faith, rather than make thinking that he's going to become unclean, she reaches out and touches him, which is probably the first time she's reached out and touched anyone in a very long time, yeah, or had point. anyone touch her because she's unclean. Mm-hmm. And she's healed. And for just imagining that moment, it's powerful to me. And then the father, right afterwards, hearing that his daughter is dead and being told what he must have thought was so morbid by by Jesus. Nope, just come with me. We're going to take care of it. Um, And he says, you know, your daughter isn't dead. She's asleep, which is a a deeply um, rich theological expression of of what's happening to to a person when they when they when their body dies 
Jesus goes and he brings her back. I mean, the the power of the new kingdom breaking in and changing these lives. It gets me. I just, I love it. So the last, uh, the last thing that we see in these chapters is some very well-known and very important teachings of Jesus and Luke. It's generally called the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then we get, in Matthew especially, just kind of a catalog of parables. Um, and uh, I think just <clears throat> big picture, you know, that Jesus, you know, he's famous well, he's famous for the whole dying and rising again thing. But I think that, that even for people who are outside the faith, who don't accept that those things happen, like Jesus is still famous as a healer and a teacher, you know, in the Muslim religion, he's a healer and he's a teacher, he's a prophet. I think if you ask almost anyone in the world, I mean, some people haven't heard of him, but you know, they will, they will respect him as a, as a healing presence, whether they believe he actually did healings or not, but especially for his teaching. I mean, so much of our civilization at this point is built on these words of Jesus and just the revolution that he inspired just in terms of moral thinking, let alone, you know, just leaving all the rest of it out, which obviously we can't. But just just taking that on its own, you know, modern freedom and human rights and all these different things ultimately really do uh, stem from some of the things that Jesus says here. And of course, the background of the Old Testament as well. Um, but I think, well, what were, what was your, what was your highlighted thing? Um, I don't know that I had a highlighted thing from this. Okay. It's hard to pick. No, no, it is hard to pick. Well, I think that I would maybe just say two things cause we can't, I mean, as much as we'd like to go through it with a comb, we can't. <laughs> that could be another year's podcast. It could, it could, but just to remember, especially in reading the sermon on the plane slash Mount, just what. Pastor Clayton had already mentioned about Jesus's love and use of hyperbole, you know, and there's some very famous examples in these verses. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He just didn't mean it literally. He just didn't mean it literally. <laughs> and I think most of us are like, okay, you know, well, the probably fact that we not. haven't done it tells right, us we know right. he didn't mean it literally. <laughs> he did mean it. You know, he is, he's saying it's of the utmost seriousness, you know, and we need to do everything in our power to resist these things. But just, just I think to remember that you know that that he is using hyperbole, and and it's and he's he's using that I think to convey the truth, and I think that that helps us understand the parables as well, you know. And uh, when he says, let's see, in Luke eight, he kind of talks a little bit about the purpose of the parables here, and I wanted to comment on that briefly just in terms of thinking about all of them. Mm. <clears throat> so Jesus says in Luke 8, starting in verse 9, and he had just given the parable of the sower. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing that they may not understand. And then he explains that particular parable. But again, that's an odd thing for our expectations of Jesus for him to say, you know, and he's like, well, I actually don't want anyone to know what I'm talking about. So I'm speaking in code. Now that was a paraphrase. And that's not exactly what he meant, but I just wanted to comment on that briefly. And Clinton, you can fill in uh, once I'm done that I think that, that part of the reason Jesus spoke in parables really truly was that he literally was speaking in code <laughs> that he couldn't just say, if he said some of the things he meant directly, they would have killed him early. And so I think that he is speaking in code, coded references to Jerusalem, coded references to the leadership, coded references to Herod and the Romans, so that, you know, everybody, quote, wink, wink, knows what he's talking about, but he's not saying the things directly because 
his time had not yet come and they would have killed him earlier. But I think as well, an N.T. Wright, who we referenced last week, pointed this out in one of his books, and I think that he's correct about this, is that it is intentional that a lot of the parables are not immediately clear and that yes. they cause you to sit and think about them. That's what that's what Jesus meant. It's not that, oh, well, why wasn't Jesus a better communicator? Actually, he was a brilliant communicator oh, and a brilliant teacher. And he said these things not just to confuse people, but so that those who were ready for the new kingdom, for the new wineskin, they, or they are the new wineskins that the new wine is being poured into, that they would sit and puzzle through these things and their minds and their hearts would actually be reformed around these parables to be ready for the kingdom. I mean, that's, that's literally truly what it is, you know? And so I think that when he says, uh, but for the others, they are in parables so that they, even though they, so that seeing they may not see and hearing that they may not understand that just some random bystander who is not interested, you know, maybe they're there to get healed, but they don't, they're not interested in Jesus himself, what he's saying. They're going to hear the parables and go, I have no idea what that means. So I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's almost like the self sorting, right? It's like, if you're not ready, then you're not ready. You, you could be ready later, you know, but like right now you're not ready. And so I think I, I think that's just, an, that was an important piece for me as I've been reading and studying the gospels and, and just trying to understand what the parables are and why Jesus spoke in them. And just to encourage all of you as you're reading and some of the parables, of course, many of them are well known, but if they don't make sense or you're not sure exactly what Jesus is talking about, that's fine. You're in good company. Don't, just move on, but especially if there's a particular parable that grabs you, like sit and think about it, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if it's a parable that you're very familiar with and quote unquote, think you already know what it means, <laughs> you know, and that's not to say that that, that prior knowledge is wrong, but just, it's still worth, I think, to sit and think through again and, and to, to mull over it. Because again, Jesus, I think layered just like, I mean, in some ways, Jesus is almost like, if the Old Testament became a person, <laughs> truly, you know, and so you see the same sort of thing. I mean, the Old Testament we've talked about over and over again is very layered. It does many things at one time, you know, and especially in the prophets. And so Jesus does that as well in his teaching and in his parables. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.